what quality of music are you going to get? When people have to work day jobs, you know, the whole phenomenon of being poor and famous. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know if that's going to work. Our sister, Natalie, someone asked her, what's your perfect day? And she says, I would wake up in London, I would go to Borough Market, and I would play at Royal Albert Hall that night. And then, seriously, two <laughs> days later, <laughs> yeah, two days later, James Bay texts us and is like, what do you think about this? And we're like, holy crap. Because you're altering the DNA of everything you've been listening to, altering it, bringing it up to date, modifying it, and turning it into um, you know, a kind of higher art form. That trips me out more than any accolade, than winning any Grammy, than any of that shit. That's how you win. I think I just really completely unhooked myself from the sort of rat race that you can get caught in with with music. So I just I just was like, why would I do this unless I do exactly what I want? I was nowhere. You know, I had, I'd lost my record deal, massively in debt, and no obvious signs that I would ever be able to recover that, you know, because a career looked to be pretty much finished. There is no formula to having a hit record. It happens, and it's probably 60% luck, 30% talent, and 10% timing. Making a hit record is tough, but maintaining success is another skill entirely. On The Art of Longevity, we explore the artist's experience of the music business from the inside. I want to find out what separates those artists and bands that have survived decades in the music business from all those who've fallen by the wayside. We follow a narrative inspired by a quote from Brett Anderson of Suede, who said that all successful artists have followed a similar career arc, like Stations of the Cross. The struggle, success, excess, disintegration, and if you're lucky, enlightenment. With insights and stories for music fans, aspiring musicians, and creators, this is The Art of Longevity. The Art of Longevity is presented with Bowers & Wilkins, the revered British premium audio brand. I'm very, very pleased to welcome Andy McCluskey and Paul Humphreys from Orchestral Muse in the Dark to The Art of Longevity. I've been a massive fan of yours since... I bought your first album when I was, I think, 12, maybe. So it is an absolute joy to, to, to meet you and to have you on the show. I'd like to start off, actually, if you don't mind talking a bit about those early days when you guys were in your teens and growing up in Liverpool. I, I believe you met at primary school. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, we. I moved to the town called Mel's when I was about seven. So and then I went to primary school. So uh, where Andy was actually at at that, at that primary school. So... Yeah, we've known each other since seven. seven, yeah. seven yeah. It's a long bloody time. <laughs> when you were in your teens in Liverpool, I'm wondering what it was like then. I mean, reading autobiographies of your contemporaries, they often talk about music being an escape. Was that something for you or were you just music lovers and just enjoyed playing music? I mean, we were music lovers. I mean, obviously, the, there were different times then. And, uh, you, you know, music was the main sort of uh thing to thing to do to listen to music you know there was no there was no you know internet or video games or dvds and, and you know streaming so music music was was everything to the youth really you were kind of uh you know what the clothes you wore your know, haircut you had was kind of associated with the kind of music that you listened to and so music was kind of everything for for, for all the, uh, our generation and it's interesting to me because, I, I mean, as I say, I mean, I think I was, I'd have been 12 when I bought my first single in 1978. And at that time, I can remember within a couple of years, I got a collection of albums. So it was you guys and Ultravox, a bit of Craftwork, Depeche Mode, Soft Cell. And I, I genuinely thought I had a complete electronic music collection. And of course, it was only over the years that you realised there was so much going on. I mean, at that time, growing up in Liverpool, how did you find out about, I mean, how did you come across Craftwork, for example? Obviously, it was before the internet. And all you, all you had really was the radio, which was limited. Generally, John Peel played the most interesting stuff. So you listened to him late at night. But it was the music press, you know, it was the NME and Sounds and Melody Maker. And, and you you bought all of those and you kept looking and hoping you came across something interesting. Certainly, I think as teenagers, Paul and I 
were looking for different things. We we weren't really interested in the conventional. By mid-teens, we'd already discovered Kraftwerk. Actually, because Kraftwerk had a hit with Autobahn, that was the thing that alerted me to it. So I went to see them in Liverpool in September 75, and it was really like, wow, I'd never seen a band like them. And then Paul and I started kind of making music together in the back room of his mum's house on a Saturday when she was at work. And it was very primitive, very ambient, because quite frankly, that was all we could do with the limited cheap crap equipment we had. But um, that, that was the beginning of a journey which we had no idea where it was going to go. It was, it was just a hobby. We just made weird noises on a Saturday afternoon. Yeah, we had no idea that other other bands were listening to the same kind of music we were listening to, and had and generated the same kind of um, you know interest mm. in in electronic music, and uh, and so all these bands started popping up because I remember when we heard um, the normal uh, um, warm weather by normal, normal. yeah, and uh, at Eric's club, and we went, wow, there's other people making making electronic music, then we heard Being Boiled by the Human League, and it's like, wow, there's another band doing it. Yeah. I think it was that that spurred us on to actually daring to get up on stage and and actually, you know, play our sort of electronic music, because before that, we thought we were doing it in isolation, you know. Yeah, sure, because they just like you say, there was no internet. You just didn't have that kind of connection, did you, with other people who were doing similar things? But I, I often think that, like, kind of the year zero for synth pop was the kind of 1981. There's so many electronic singles in the charts that year. But of course, I mean, by then, you were on your third album, weren't you? I mean, you were, you were almost the kind of the elder statesman of synth pop. Did, did you suddenly feel your time was now and everything had come together? It was very strange, really, because obviously in the very early days, as Paul indicated, you know, we had no idea that there was actually other people out there in their little islands um, because we were unaware of them. And then when we started to realise, as Paul said again, we decided we wanted to do one gig, just one gig, to say we'd done it before I went to art college and Paul went off to to do electronics. Um, and it just escalated. But, yeah, very quickly from 78 to kind of 80, 81, what had seemed to be like real outsider music that was swimming against the tide within a couple of years had become the established chart-making method of creating music. It was an amazing shift. Yeah, and I, and I do think, though, I mean, because you had had that kind of head start, you know, through your own, you know, being precocious with electronic music. I mean, architecture and morality, I think, was probably the most, well, actually not probably, I think it was the most innovative album of that period. That transition from organisation to architecture and morality, was there something that happened that you took that leap forward creatively? Nothing changed. It was part of our kind of mantra, our raison d'etre. It was to always try to do something different. So the first album was just a collection of songs we'd done from the age of 16 to 19, recorded in our own studio that we built ourselves. And it literally was like garage synth pop. It was just a couple of teenagers with whatever we could get our hands on cheaply. Then the shift into the kind of mostly darker more kind of melancholic uh, organization album, probably influenced by us playing with Joy Division and hearing the Martin Hannett dark sound that he created. But then uh, Architecture and Morality, we wanted to change again. We, we got some new toys. We got the Mellotron, so we could use strings and choirs. And I, I was fascinated with the Edinburgh military tattoo. So we ended up with some quite bombastic drum sounds on there that sounded like marching bands. It was just, it was all part of the reasoning, which was we wanted to keep changing changing our colour. Uh, we've always kind of done that. We've always kind of got a new piece of technology or a new piece of technology has come out or we've discovered a piece of technology like the Mellotron. And and that kind of excites us, you know, artistically and create, creatively to because we got all these palette of sounds that we've never had before. So so that kind of drove... And the Mellotron, as Andy said, um, the Mellotron kind of really was the dominant uh, instrument of architecture and reality because we just bought one and we were really excited by it. And were you at that stage, I mean, because you obviously had a, a string of great singles by then, was there a point at which you kind of went, actually, no, we are good songwriters, we know what we're doing? Or was it always trial and error? It was always trial and error. I mean, we were always trying to think of something new and weird to do, a new way to make a piece of music. The unconscious part of it 
was that some of our experiments had very, very catchy melodies and very, very catchy lyrics on them. And so, you know, one or two tracks on an album were kind of radio friendly enough to be hits. We never consciously sat down and said, oh, we need to write a single for this album because we haven't got one yet. It just kind of happened, you know, I mean, whether that was a kind of accidental, unconscious amalgam of our love of Kraftwerk synth melodies with our kind of unconscious adoption of 70s glam English pop. I don't know, but, you know, somehow we crushed all of our influences into either quite weird stuff or very, very catchy synth pop. I think we always kind of felt that um, we've always started with, you know, each song we do is kind of an experiment to begin with. And sometimes the melody is the last thing that goes on the top. You know, we kind of do songwriting in reverse. You know, a, a, a lot of songwriters, you know, sit at the piano and hash out the melody and the chords first. With us, we start with a whole sort of soundscape and crazy noises, and then quite often the tune will land on top. And I think when we started having hits, I think we started to maybe realise that we did have a bit of a knack for a catchy tune. Although the first time we did Top of the Pops with Messages started... A pattern, a trend, which is that uh, because we thought we were experimental, because, I mean, when Tony Wilson said, you're the future of pop, I think we told him to fuck off. <laughs> um, but then when he offered us a contract, we're, oh, yeah, well, obviously we'll make a record with you, but but we're we're alternative, we're experimental. But when we the first time we did Top of the Box, before the red light went on, Paul and I looked at each other and basically mouthed to each other, how the fuck did this happen? Like kind of <laughs> imposter sensibility, you know, but, and it carried on. We still kept doing it. Writing with Carl Bartos must have been an extraordinary experience for you. But what was it like when you, the first time you had to let someone else into your creative process and kind of, did you feel they're going to see how haphazard we are or do you think everybody writes like that? Uh, so, certainly for me, it was terrifying because Carl is a is a is a trained musician. You know, Carl, Carl went to a conservatory, and in fact, you know, Kraftwerk went and asked his tutor, "Who's the best drummer stroke musician you've got?" And they said, "Young Carl Bartos," and that's why they got him in the band. So um, for me, yeah, I mean, the bottom line is that Paul and I learned to play our instruments. Whilst writing, whilst songs. writing songs, so we yeah. we never knew any rules. We never knew how to do it. Um, it was just we did it by ear and 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 by feel and instinct. And so it was, you know, we can't jam with other people. Don't ask us to play a twelve bar blues. Don't ask us to play. Well, he, Paul has learned now, but you know, if you, if you if somebody says to me, "Oh, it's an inverted major seven, I go, "What the fuck is that?" <laughs> so, well, you use it all the time. Do I really? I had no idea. <laughs> The Art of Longevity is presented with Bowers & Wilkins, the revered British premium audio brand. Bowers & Wilkins makes some of the world's finest audio products. From the iconic 800 series loudspeakers, trusted by Abbey Road Studios for over 40 years, to the flagship PX8 wireless headphones, this is music as the artist intended you to hear it. This sort of accepted wisdom that you might want to, to contradict that when Dazzle Ships wasn't as commercially successful, that was an album that I absolutely loved, that you kind of switched tack to writing more poppy material. I mean, A, is that true? And then B, I mean, that's amazing that you were able, I mean, it's that easier said than done, isn't it? I'll go and write some pop singles now. I mean, when Junk Culture came out, which was the soundtrack to my A-levels, how did you just go, right, now we're writing pop? Well, I think what, what really happened was um, we just kept doing whatever we felt like doing. And every album, you know, we, we got bigger and bigger. And so we continued doing whatever we felt like doing with Dazzle Ships. But uh, I think we forgot to sugarcoat the experiment a little bit. And it kind of... Uh... <laughs> You've got to understand here that the first three albums we made, we were doing what we wanted to do. The record company never second-guessed us. The record company never said, you know, why don't you do this, work with this producer, you know, change this, change that. They just let us get on with it, and we delivered an album. And then Dindisc Records, which was the subsidiary of Virgin that we were on, folded. 
we ended up on the parent company. They had no knowledge of how we worked or connection with us. So they just went, well, how does this work? So we sit in our studio, we write the songs, and then we call you up and say, we're going into this studio with this engineer, give us the money, and we'll deliver an album, and it sells millions. Okay. I went, yeah, okay, well, that seems to work, so we'll carry on. And then we delivered Dazzle Ships. I think there were certain elements before the, in the making of Dazzle Ships where we found ourselves in a dilemma where for some reason, certainly I thought we were going to try and change the world by doing radically new music. Quite how we were going to do it, I look back now and I think I was rather naive. <laughs> but we had we were selling millions of records. The world was listening to us. And a couple of spiky journalists were saying, well, the world is listening to you. Why are you writing songs about Joan of Arc and you know why are you not more overtly political so because I got a beer in my bonnet went right I'm going to be more overtly political and dazzle ships are very kind of cold war and, and radio samples and things and yeah I think as Paul said we didn't consciously or unconsciously sugarcoat anything we left more of the kind of bare bones framework everybody kind of heard genetic engineering went what and then the album came out and the viewers went what and yeah, we shit ourselves because we were old men then of 24 and we, he was married. We had houses. This was our job. And we were like, yeah. Oh hell, uh, we need to keep paying the bills. Um, so consciously and unconsciously, we stepped back a little bit and we were, we were, we were a bit more conservative with the writing in junk culture. Yeah. We, we had a bit of a joke in the band that uh, dazzle ships shipped gold and returned platinum. You know, more came back than went out. <laughs> so it was a bit of a shock, really. Because now it's considered the fractured masterpiece and a world changer. And, and so many musicians who you wouldn't even expect to notice say what a great album it was. So, you know, it, it's one of those things, you know, the disaster becomes the triumph with the passage of time. It did sort of scare us, the fact that, you know, we that it wasn't at all commercially successful. So I think, getting back to your earlier question, I mean, I think that's why we kind of stopped with the more, you know, sort of difficult. And we, we still write songs, even the later albums after Dazzle Ships, it still starts as an experiment. But we're very, very conscious to keep it more commercial, just to just to kind of rescue our career. We were, we were worried that Virgin were going to drop us and that was it, you know. Although it's worth pointing out, I mean, unless I'm misremembering, I think Junk Culture had the free single, didn't it? The Angels Keep Turning the Wheels of the Universe. I mean, that was quite an extraordinary piece of writing. Yeah, it was yeah. really bombastic and pompous, wasn't it? It was great fun. <laughs> it was fantastic, yeah. I mean, John Lennon sort of famously being interviewed in the early 60s and said, you know, he was, he was thinking they might get two or three years out of the Beatles and that that would kind of be it. I mean, was there a point at which you went, OK, so you, you know, you've, you've played one gig and then you decide to play more. You've had one successful album, two successful albums. Was there a point where you went, actually, this this is actually our career now. This is what we do for a living. Yeah, I mean, I think we did sort of hit a point where we thought you know, we could actually have a career. But uh, early on, we were just budgeting for failure. You know, I mean, for a start, we only were going to do one gig and then we got offered a second and then doors started to open. And so we always walked through the doors that opened. But I mean, the, the reality was when we got offered a seven album deal, we thought, well, nobody's going to buy seven. We'll be lucky to get past one. So instead of going into a studio, and paying 30 grand for a couple of reels of two-inch tape. We built our own studios so so that when... When they dropped us. Yeah, when we were dropped, at least we'd have our own studio. That that was, as Paul said, budgeting for failure. So it was, um, it was yeah, it, it was a, an amazing journey. But I think most bands, including the Beatles, generally, you know, 99% of bands get a couple of years out of it, a few albums, maybe a hit or two, and then something goes wrong, and that's the end of their career. And I think most most musicians would assume that that was going to be the path. Yeah, sure. You mentioned the gramophone suite, your, your your studio. I mean, having your own studio must have led, I guess, to a different kind of writing anyway, because you didn't have to write a load of songs and then take them into the studio. You could actually develop them in the studio. Yeah. They were written in the studio. They were written onto tape. I mean, you've got to remember, although from 1980 onwards we were a four-piece on stage, we were still a two-piece when we wrote. And... This was before computers, so everything had to be laid down onto the tape in a linear fashion, and we just wrote into the tape. And then, and then, you know, if you wanted to change chord or put a middle eight in or something, you had to go back, pick the relevant points, and then drop everything into record and change it. 
um, or, or splice the tape. It's why, to be honest, most of our early songs are very linear. I mean, messages that uh, arpeggiating uh, sequence is the same all the way through. It never changes. Yeah. Enola Gay is the same four chords all the way through. Uh, Souvenir is mostly the same all the way through, apart from when Paul went back and did a middle eight by pushing different faders up because the choirs were already on the multi-track. So everything was was written onto tape. That's the way we created our songs. So when your career has gone from that, working with very basic equipment, working on tape splicing and that kind of thing, to now other end of the spectrum workings or digital workstations, that ability to just slide stuff around, add instruments in, take them out, has that changed the way you go about writing? We still kind of write the same in the same way, really. We just throw our ideas onto a, onto Pro Tools now instead of tape. But the beauty now is that you can so easily move things around. It's uh, it's it's a fantastic it's like tool. Like cut and paste on Word documents. It's just like, okay, pick that up, move it over there, copy that, change that. I mean, we couldn't have dreamed of that technology when we yeah. started. One of the nice things is it means if you get a chorus that sounds great, you just go, right, put that there, put that there, put that there. I don't need to sing that again. <laughs> but it's... um. We always say, though, that it has its blessings and its curses because, obviously, the, there's a thing that we call the tyranny of choice, which is, you know, you can have too many tracks, and if you're not kind of ruthless with your editing, you end up with a big, fat digital mess of too many overdubs and possible hi-hat patterns. Just and, because you can. You yeah, know. And, and, you know, you know in, in the old days, it was like, okay, bass drum. We've got the Roland CR78 bass drum, which we can play manually, or we can get Malcolm to play his kick drum, and that's it. Now it's like bass drum. Okay, library, 2,857 samples. Which one or which eight shall I use, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and we only had 16, we only had a 16-track tape recorder as well. So we had to be very ruthless with what we recorded because we didn't have many tracks. Which was great, though, because it was like if, if, if we were sat there and, so, and, and one of us went... I've got a good idea. We both go, is it better than anything on these other 16 tracks? Because we're going to have to erase something. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, that change in technology must have made a big difference. I mean, when you were first playing live in the 80s, you'd worry about your equipment getting warm and going out of tune. And then now you can just virtually take a laptop on stage with you. Has has that experience changed a lot playing live? Yeah, it's taken... um, it's taken some of the some of the worry and the fear out of going on stage, actually, because most of my fear wasn't about playing to an audience. My fear was, is it going to work tonight? When I used to walk out on stage in the eighties, you know, what's going to break down tonight? And and you know, when we in the early part of the eighties, before since even had presets, between every song, Martin and I used to stick a flashlight in our mouth. We had a we had a sheet for the settings of the synth for the next song, and then with one hand we'd do the settings, the other hand had the sheet and the flashlight in the mouth, and uh, and Andy'd have to tell jokes if we we're taking too long, you know. So uh, <laughs> the only the only saving grace was that we're the generation that actually had the the cheap non-valve synthesizers and and non so so actually none of our stuff was valve. So it wouldn't drift. The only problem we had was when we tried to take the Mellotron on the road, which has a big flywheel. If the voltage varies, the bloody thing would slow down. And there'd been a gig where Paul was like frantically turning the pitch wheel to get it up into the right speed. He's like, I can't get it any shoulder. <laughs> there was one gig we did in France where uh, where the uh, I couldn't get the Mellotron into tune. And oh, it was the sound check, wasn't it? It was the sound check. It was six o'clock in the evening. Six o'clock in the evening, did a sound check. And we couldn't get the Mellotron into tune. And, uh, but the, it was because the voltage had dropped in the whole town because everyone was cooking. So we had to basically wait until people finished cooking before we could go on stage. You know? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I don't miss those kind of things. And, and now, you know, the technology is amazing, you know, because I, I play virtual into Martin as well. We play virtual instruments on a laptop. I mean, we're still playing everything. But it's just great to have everything sort of pre-programmed. You know, when you press next, that the whole everything shifts on the keyboard, and you've got all the you know Mellotron down there, and the melody up there, and the choirs here. So it's it's just it takes all the you know the 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 worry out of playing live, and then you just and I I definitely enjoy the gigs more because of that. Until one of your notes breaks inside, and it, the the F is playing F sharp. Yeah, <laughs> There will always be problems, <laughs> but but no, not nowhere near the magnitude of uh, of the problems that we had in the eighties. You know, 
I remember we walked out. We were doing the uh, Depeche Mode 101 tour. Oh. We were playing the Rose Bowl. 70,000 people. 70,000 people. We walk out on stage. And, uh, starting Old Gay. Starting Old Gay. There's a big spike in the mains, and Mars and I were playing Mellotrons, and it just restarted the, 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 um, uh, emulators. The emulators, sorry. Emulators. Yeah. They started reloading the discs, and Paul and Martin are just looking at these little digital spaces. This yeah. will take, take a, a while. while. <laughs> Meanwhile, me and Malcolm are doing a, a, a dub drum and bass yeah, version bass of Enola Gay, <laughs> waiting for the fucking synths <laughs> to come back in. It was quite cool, the drum and bass version. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my impression from seeing you uh, on the occasion I've seen you playing over the years, the impression you give is that you genuinely enjoy doing the live performances and being out there and engaging with your, with your audience. It's changed a lot over the years. When we first started, we did feel very much like we were kind of fighting the audience, fighting the journalists, fighting the expectation of what a synthesizer and in inverted commas band should be. And it did feel like hard work and it was quite intimidating. And I certainly used to get very nervous and, and, and be quite kind of like, right, you like, you're going to fucking have this. We're going to stick it to you, you know, and it's taken a long time for me, particularly. I think it's only since we reformed, I finally stopped getting so many stage nerves because the penny finally dropped it's like andrew if these several thousand people have bought a ticket to come and see you they probably already like the music so you're probably on a good a good wicket here yeah. you know you're not having to beat them up you're not having to fight the audience they're on your over. side yeah they're on your side yeah. thanks for listening to the art of longevity i hope you're enjoying the conversation so far Please take a moment to rate the show, leave a review on Apple Podcasts if that's where you listen, and do spread the word. Also, you can sign up via the Song Sommelier webpage for our newsletter, artwork, and much more. Back to the conversation. The Punishment of Luxury, I would put in my top three OMD albums. It's very rare for a band with a career of your length that you're looking at one of the most recent albums and saying... That's one of the best things I've ever done. So, I mean, when you're putting a set list together now, I'm guessing you're doing a balance between the enjoyment of the the new stuff you've written that's that's great, and also wanting to make sure you you play all the songs people are expecting to hear. I mean, do you have a, a sort of core list of things you think we can't we can't play a gig without playing this song? Well, that's the thing. The problem we have is that we've had lots of hit singles. And so there's very few hit singles that we can actually drop. I mean, we... Somebody we, always bloody moans. You know, you'll drop one yeah. of them. You didn't play Pandora's Box. That's my favourite. Why did you drop If You Leave out of the set? We came all the way from America to hear that. Um, so, you know... It, well, we it, don't want to play for three hours, you know. Mm -hmm. So either. So. It, it, yeah, it, 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 it is a balance. balance. You're right. And, 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 I mean, we'll be going out next year on the Bauhaus Staircase tour. We will probably play five tracks from the new album. We will probably replace Isotype and Punishment of Luxury in the set with two of the tracks off the new album. But Anthropocene will probably take the Isotype place. Evolution of Species will probably start the set off with a, a kind of... It would be like the Architecture Morality or Dazzle Ships um, weird opener. And um, and then we'll see where we go. But it's, it's going to be nice to mix it up. I mean... Thank you for what you said about punishment to luxury. I mean, it, it's become evident over the last six years that you're not alone. You know, a, a lot of a lot of our fans and journalists actually talk about punishment of being in the top three, probably with dazzle ships and architecture, and that's that's amazing. I mean, that makes us feel good because you know, when you get to our age. It's sometimes, well, in fact, it's usually dangerous and stupid to make a new album because people don't want one and they, they expect it's going to be crap because you're not, you know, you're going to go in the studio for a couple of weeks because you can't be bothered or you've got other priorities and, um, and just churn out the first load of crap that comes to mind. And we're not going to do that. You know, it, it's, it's very nice being in orchestral maneuvers in the dark now. It's been a 45-year journey. We've got to a nice place now where people say, oh, you're iconic, oh, you're influential. So we don't want to fuck it up by releasing a shit album. And, you know, we go, oh, we've got to play one from the new album, and half the audience go to the bathroom, you know? 
when you were writing Punishment, did you think, well, this is, you know, this is kind of a bit of a leap here? You know, did you feel at the time you were doing something really exciting? I mean, I wouldn't want to suggest it would be just another OMD album, but were you aware that you did this suddenly you were doing something that was going to grab people? Well, I think we were kind of leading up to that album with the two previous ones, you know, because History of Modern was us getting the machinery back oiled again because it was our first album back together for a, for a long time. Yeah. And uh, English Electric, we started to experiment and play around a bit more with the technology and and get a little bit more of some of more of the esoteric tracks like uh, Please Remain Seated. I think, you know, the bottom line is we were having fun and we were enjoying writing where there were no rules. I mean, we promised ourselves when we reformed that we were going to try to go back to how it was in the early days where nobody told us what to do. We only released something when we thought it was ready. There was no scheduling and we weren't going to release anything unless we thought it was good because there's nothing more excruciating than doing a series of interviews and realizing that a, your favourite journalist didn't want to talk to you because they didn't want to say that bad things about the new album, uh, and B that they they don't say anything about the new album when you're doing an interview because they don't want to insult their people that they've liked over the years. So it's as I say, it's dangerous and stupid to do new music unless you are really, really, really going to invest in it. Yeah, which we did, and we've invested a lot of time in, in all these records, but because we're you know acutely aware that everything we release gets put on this. Uh, the scale, you know, uh, against our sort of back catalogue. And, um, you know, we're aware that we, we we need to kind of have a good balance there, you know, with with our back catalogue. But as Andy said, you know, we have gone back to our roots more. I mean, towards the end of the 80s, we had literally no time to make our records. We, we were so busy touring and trying to break America towards the end of the 80s that, you know, the last couple of albums... You know, we just we got back off tour exhausted, but we had this contractual obligation of, of well, we were financial obligations as well. Bloody skins! So, I mean, yeah. that was the downside of signing a record deal when we were both nineteen years old. You know, we were just like, oh, record deal, yeah, where do we sign? And the, the the royalties that we were on, or the lack of royalties, was nearly criminal. And and you know, they gave you with one hand, and they seemed to take back with five. I mean, you know. We got to the end of, of 1988. We came off the, the, the 101 tour with Depeche Mode. They'd been earning enough money to retire. We'd been given $5,000 a night, and we, it, we'd lost a shitload of money on that tour. And we got home, and our manager said, you're unrecouped at Virgin by a million pounds. And it wasn't because we had castles and yachts. It was just because everything was charged against our royalty rate, which was so freaking low. You know, we weren't in it for the money but you can't run a band on fresh air. No, sure. So, I mean, but there, here you are with another new album uh, with Bauhaus Staircase. I'm gonna, I've loved a couple of tracks I've heard so far. Did you enjoy writing that? I'm, from what you say, I'm guessing you would Oh, have you not heard the album yet? Oh, it's better than Punishment of Luxury. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I'm, I'm encouraged by that. <laughs> um, again, it's taken six years. You know, when you get to our age, it's hard to find new energies to tap into, new subjects to sing about with energy, new melodies that doesn't sound like something you've done before, new chord sequences, new sounds. The, the dilemma of being an audio artist is that there are strict limitations to what you're allowed to do. I feel very jealous of people like Monet and Picasso. You know, Monet did fucking dozens of haystacks in different colours. Picasso did dozens of bloody Dora Mar paintings, you know, variations on a theme. If we go anywhere near sounding anything like Enola Gay or Souvenir, people go, whoa, we get crucified. <laughs> we get yeah. crucified you know? So you, you have to really go deep into the well and hope there's been time for the inspiration to fill up. And and also it gets harder when you're older because you just think, do I really want to sit in front of this bloody computer and mine my soul for quality music? Or do I want to go on holiday? Or do I want to go and spend some time with my family and my kids? You know, increasingly the answer is, no, I don't want to sit in front of this computer. And quite frankly, Bauhaus Staircase probably wouldn't exist if it wasn't for COVID. So did you write that during lockdown then? Started there, really. Yeah. I mean, like, like visual artists, you know, who have various canvases leaning in the far corner of the studio and they keep going back to them going, hmm, yeah, can I rewrite 
that one is there an idea in that we've always got stuff in our computers which we will go round again every year or two going let me have a look at that stuff there what's that one called yeah there's no. always a kernel of a good idea yeah you go, oh the, actually the melodies, melodies good maybe i can get a different lyric on it or or whatever and, and and so yeah there was nothing else to do at least six of the songs we, you know, we're releasing a sort of limited edition demo CD because it's always interesting for people to hear where the song started. And I, so I went back into my computer and I went back to like, you know, version 1.1. And six of the tracks on the album are dated between March and May of 2020. So they started right at the beginning of COVID. There was, there was fuck all else to do. I mean, how do you feel about going back out on the road? You've got a big tour coming up now. Excited about that? You're kind of a bit, bit weary in advance. What's your What's your feeling? No, excited. I mean, you know, we love we love playing live. It's it's one of our favourite things to do now. You know, because I, I think I think we've actually realised that we're actually a good live band, and it's the only opportunity you get to actually sort of interact with the people who love your music. You know, otherwise it's just virtual. Yeah, you're not in the shop when they buy the record. Well, it used to be, it used to be the shop. Now it's online. But yeah. you know, you're not in the car when they're listening to it. You're not at home when they're listening to it. So, it, as Paul said, it's the only chance you get to actually share the music in one space with the people who are your audience. And it's um, it's a buzz. And you know, we we always give a hundred percent. And then if the audience start giving back the love that we're trying to throw off the stage then it gets cyclical and it just kind of grows and, and, and tips into a, a, a wonderful, wonderful feeling. And so we, we love playing live. The other great thing I like about live is even if you screw up, you can't go back and do it again. You can't overdub it. You can't remix it. It's just done. You walk away and you do the next one. It also seems to me that your audience is really familiar with your albums. And I've heard you close many times with The Romance of the Telescope, which is... Yeah, you know, almost a deep cut in a way. It's, it's, it's you know, it's it's not one of your big singles. It's not a big number, is it? But but your audience are familiar with your stuff. They love songs like that. Yeah, I mean, it's really important for us to do a deep dive for, for, for you know a couple of tracks, some sort of slightly more obscure ones. I mean, it's very difficult because you know we have to play all the hits. We want to you know represent and play some of the new albums. So. So, but there's always an area where we want to do something. I mean, we've had these times when we go down the front and play almost and statues and things like that, you know, and, uh, and we'll be doing some, something similar on the, on the tour just for the hardcore fans who want to hear something. It's fun also now that we, we kind of, we're allowed to do whatever we want, you know, so we've, with a few years ago, we did all of Dazzle Ships and all of Architecture Morality at the Royal yeah, Albert Hall. And, and I have to say, it was quite wonderful playing those sets, knowing that 5,000 people had come from all over the world and they didn't want to hear the hit singles. They wanted the weird shit. They wanted the most obscure stuff we could throw at them. The B-sides, everything, you know, it was crazy. It was so much fun. So do you, are you ever tempted to put out sort of albums that are more leaning that way? I mean, do you feel, like, I'm guessing not from what you've said, but do you do you ever have something and think, you know, that's, that's too far outside what we count as being OMD? I find, as the main lyricist and top-line writer, I find it harder and harder and harder to get vocals and vocal melodies. So there's a large part of me is quite enticed by the idea of doing a kind of instrumental. ambient instrumental album. <laughs> <laughs> Abdicate my responsibilities. You've mentioned uh, a couple of artists and paintings that made that analogy earlier. And I mean, the last two albums have both been named after paintings. Is that an area of interest for you? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I grew up with the visual arts. I mean, I, I was supposed to go and do a fine art degree at Leeds in 1978. And the band played our first ever supposedly one off gig at. 12th of October 1978 and I didn't go to uni ever again and Paul didn't go to do his electronics um so but yeah visual arts is where I came from I was assuming I'd go back to uni but I never did and um interestingly I found out recently when I was reading a book by another artist had I gone to Leeds Poly to do fine art in 1978 I would have been there at the same time as Green Side from Squitty and Dave Ball and Mark Armand from Soft Cell. Yeah. 
which would have been interesting. But uh, no, the, I use a lot of visual references in the music. I mean, Bauhaus Staircase is referencing a painting by, painting by Schlemmer. There are references to the Bauhaus, but it's it's not a, it's not a history lesson. I'm using it as a metaphor. Very often, I'm using paintings and titles and things as starting points, as metaphors, and then off off I go. And I mean. I was delighted, actually, and, and completely accidentally, it just came out of my mouth that I, I rhymed. I rhymed second chance with Perubu and the modern dance in Bauhaus Staircase, and, and they are. I mean, we used to love going to see them at Eric's in the late seventies. Yeah, they're amazing. But when I googled Perubu and the modern dance recently, Bauhaus Staircase by OMD came up first. I was like, oh my god. The Art of Longevity is recorded at Cube West Studios in Acton and sometimes at the Cube East Studios in London's Canary Wharf. Cube is the world's first members studio for musicians, podcasters and content creators and it's a real sanctuary for London's independent-inspired creators. It's a real pleasure to record the show here. What's it like being in OMD now? Does it still feel like a band? Is it, is it as much of a joy as it ever was? Um, I think in some ways I prefer this, this second incarnation of OMD to the first time because there was so much stress, stress and anxiety in the first part. It made it hard to enjoy your achievements, you know, whereas uh, this time we're far more relaxed. Uh, we kind of know what we're doing now we're in we're in control of what we're doing so usually we usually we take our time to do things although right at the moment we've jokingly said just the last few days that we're starting to feel like we're becoming victims of the quality of our new album because everybody's heard it now is wanting more interviews we've just been offered later with jules holland which we didn't think we were going to get asking us to play two new tracks we haven't had a chance to program or learn the new tracks but we'll be playing them at the bbc on tuesday so we're starting to get a little bit panicked by about shit we've made a really good album and now everybody wants a piece of us we, we haven't got any time to to do the thing you know it's it, we're starting to feel a bit squeezed like we did back in the early 80s which is, are, is a yeah. sign of your success that everybody wants a piece of you but we've been quite leisurely for the last 15 years <laughs> and it's a bit strange to, to find it all full on now but you know we can't complain i mean it, it's it's nice to have a problem like you've made a great album and everybody wants to talk to you you did things kind of, I suppose, traditionally, for a better word. You know, you formed a band, you, you know, you got a contract, you put a single out, you got into the charts and you did it that way. I mean, would you want to be in a band these days? Would you want to be starting? No, no absolutely not. I mean, I feel so sorry for, for, for younger bands now because there, there really isn't the infrastructure like there was for us. You know, there, you know, there was a way to do things. You had to, you know, you had a record company who, if they signed you, would would bankroll you, you know. So you didn't have to have a day job. You could concentrate on developing your your art, your band, you know. Whereas now, I've, most bands starting out, there's no artist development anywhere. So you're left to your own devices. You have to do your own. You got to be an internet internet guru because you got to demonstrate to a major record label that you've already got a following of hundreds of thousands, and they won't take you unless you've got that following that you have to build yeah. yourself. And you know, musicians are are notorious at being not great at promoting themselves. You know, they just want the artists. I mean, the, the other thing you've got to remember, Fenner, is is that we um, we didn't actually want this. This was not the plan. It was a hobby. We were doing one gig as a dare. And this has been a 45-year rolling accident. We're not complaining. Trust me. We're no, not we're complaining. Not complaining. But this was not the intention. Now, maybe that's part of our particular recipe for success and longevity is we don't play by anybody else's rules. You know, we make the most of every opportunity if it's offered, but we do what the fuck we want to do. And if people like it, great. The bottom line is, Making music should be a conversation with yourselves. It's yeah. you pulling ideas and sentiments and feelings out of yourself to mirror them so that you can engage with your own inner feelings that you wouldn't be able to express mm -hmm. verbally. It's a musical therapy. It's taking yourself out of yourself so you can view yourself and have a conversation with yourself. Now, if you then share it publicly and people resonate with it and they feel oh they're speaking my language 
Well, then that's great. Then you get a career, people give you money, and, and off you go and enjoy it. The dilemma is if you change the language you're using, people go, well, they're not speaking to me anymore. How dare they change their language? How dare they change the way their music is? I fucking hate them. The bastards, they were talking to me, and now they change their language. And they get really vitriolic about it. Yeah, and you, I mean, you have managed to develop, haven't you, while maintaining that loyal following all the way through? Oh, listen, listen. We've, all, we've still got it. I mean, it's great after 45 years. We can still fuck with people. There's been an awful lot of moaning on YouTube about Slow Train. People love Bauhaus. They're like, oh, it's OMD, but new and fresh. Slow Train, it's like, why is there a girl singing on it? Why does it sound like Goldfrapp? Why is there no obvious catchy chorus? Why does it keep breaking down, stopping and starting again? They're not speaking my language anymore. That is the danger of social media, isn't it? You know, there's, there's suddenly all those quiet voices that everybody would ignore have, have now got a platform. They've now got a platform to air their, uh, their grievances. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> they they, they sit critic. in their bedroom and moan to their mother, but now they've got a platform, yeah. So you, you just have to, I mean, listen, a few years ago when we were promoting our 40th anniversary uh, compilation album and book, we were interviewed by uh, Gary Crowley, and we took great delight in saying, oh, can we just read your review in sounds of our first single, Electricity? Who wants to listen to two scousers whining about electricity anyway? <laughs> he went, no, no, no I, I don't remember re reading that. Said, we fucking remember it. It's burnt indelibly into our souls. <laughs> but, you know, you can't. That, that's why you have to do it for yourself initially, because you can't please everyone, you know. I mean, even, even just now we announced a tour last week, and, and, you know, the internet lights up. Why are you not playing near me? Do you still listen to new music? Do you still take on influences, do you feel? Yeah, I mean, we're always, yeah, we're always listening to things. We're still music lovers. We're still we, music lovers completely. No, no, mostly music haters, actually. I think well, the same as we've always well, been. Is well, yeah. Most music, very specific. Well, certainly most music I dislike. I mean, when I was a teenager, it was Kraftwerk, Neu, Ludwigsdorf, Roxy Music, Brian Eno, David Bowie, Velvet Underground, and everything else was shit. It takes something very, very special and idiosyncratic to to get into my list of things I like to listen to. But my point is that is this, that there is some really good things out there, but there's just so much noise out there now. It's hard to find the good stuff, but you can find good stuff. I mean, but, we're uh, excited. We're excited to tour with um, the British tour. We've got a new Scottish band coming out with us called Walter Disco. I don't know if you've heard of them. They're absolutely, go and Google them after we've done this. They're interview. bonkers. They're beautifully bonkers. It's like transvestite, heavy makeup, glam craziness. And we're in love with them. And we're excited to have them on the road with us. So, you know, yeah, we can still find new things. It's it's very exciting. There's a great there's a great American artist, uh, I think from Philadelphia, called Catherine Moan. Really simple analog synth pop. It could, it's, it's like, could be anything from the last 40 years. But so, yeah, we're still looking. But I personally don't find an awful lot that I do like. But when I do like it, I get very excited because it's a rarity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I think that was always the joy, wasn't it? When, you know, when you were a teenager in your bedroom, you know, listening to John Peel, David Kidd Jensen, you know, it wasn't like you liked every song they played, but you'd listen for two hours just for the off chance they'd play that one song that was going to, for five minutes, feel like it was changing your life. Exactly. Somewhere in a box in my attic, I've still got a cassette with the first 30 seconds missing of Silver Cloud by La Dusseldorf because I've... John Peel played it. I was like, what the hell? And then, then I waited for him to back out and announce it and then went straight out on Saturday to see if I could get it in the German import section at Probe Records. And I did. Fantastic. And just to kind of wrap up then, I mean, it has been an extraordinary career and I'm, I feel very lucky that I feel like I've been along for as a passenger for the, for the ride over those 45 years. But I mean... Do you think you'll record again, or you just wait and see whether the, whether the mood takes you? You never say never. But, you know, we, we have to be realistic. We have been around 45 years. We are now in our 60s. Instrumental yeah. album. Instrumental album. There you go. No, I, I tell you what, really That's seriously. A good idea. Instrumental album. We won't make a new record because we want a new logo on the T-shirt to excuse a new tour name or to, tour title. If we've got something that we think is good, We'll release it. The last thing we want to do is go out with a dud. And I'm sorry, but everybody seems to be raving about the new Rolling Stones album. 
It's like the best one they made in over 40 years. I'm like, fuck me, really? 40 years? I listened to the single. I think it sounds like AI doing the Rolling Stones. I think it's just Rolling Stones by algorithm numbers. But there you go. I was never a fan. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm doing them down. But I just, you're not going to hear anything from OMD unless we really think it's great and we trust our editorial capacity. We trust ourselves, given enough time, that we'll know if it's good. And if it's not good, you ain't going to hear it. Well, and I think your track record shows that you have that kind of integrity. Well, I hope you, I hope you like the new album. I'm sorry you haven't heard it. Yeah, you know, I enjoy the anticipation. I remember when I, you know, when I was like 13 or 14, you'd hear a single on the radio, and then you have to wait four days to get the bus into Kingston to be able to go to the record shop and buy it, and then you know, all the ride all the way home. You know, the anticipation's part of the deal for me. So uh, I'm really, really looking forward to it. The next release is called Varushka, and it's beautiful if we say so ourselves it's a very slow ballad with a kind of film noir video and and um it's we've been very fortunate that we met an amazing uh video company from hull called city 1080 and they have been doing videos for us which have just elevated our visual elements which has been wonderful uh, so you know we're still we're still excited we're still enjoying what we're doing whether we'll do an album, we have no idea. But it'd be nice to talk to you. Thank you very much. Yeah. I'll be going to, I'll be hopefully seeing, well, I will. I've got tickets. I'll be seeing you guys in Dusseldorf in the new year. So, oh, brilliant. Okay. In Dusseldorf, great. Our hometown. I've got this weird little piece of kit that picks up and records electrical signals. So, I've written to the guys who are now in the old Kling Clang studio to uh, ask yeah. if I can go in and record the wiring and stuff and then see if I can do a piece of music. So, who's in Kling Clang now? They're just some production company, but they actually have they have little gigs in there, which they then televise. So people, you can you can go in and play like a little gig in Clink. I mean, amazing thing for you guys to do, but you could go in and play a little concert. I have been in because uh, I was in Dusseldorf a few years ago, and Rudy Esch, who wrote the Electric City book, who used to be in Decrups, bass player in Decrups, he had the keys, and he said, he said, you want to you want to come somewhere interesting with me? And I went, oh, best offer I've had all day. Where are you taking me? He said, cling clang. I was like, you're hitting me. So yeah, I, I was. I had the most amazing fanboy moment. I wanted to kiss the walls. You know, it was amazing. I've been around and stood out, stood in the little courtyard outside while all the all the other tenants wanted to burgle them or something. But um, yeah, so but I just thought actually the one thing I could go in there and kind of pick up that would be unchanged from when they were in there would be the electricity signals in the cable. Wow, that's interesting. Good luck with that. You are a geek, aren't you, sir? <laughs> you are a total geek. More power to you. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. Right, <laughs> gentlemen, good luck with everything and thank you so much. Okay, right. bye. You take care. See you. Cheers. Bye-bye.